Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So last weekend, 25 of us, we went away for about six hours. We went to the Wildflower Center, and we had a workshop thinking and talking around spiritual practices and disciplines. It was led by a guest presenter, Steve Weens. And Steve started off the, the workshop with a kind of unexpected uh, twist for me. I thought that we would begin by talking about the importance of prayer or reading scripture or fasting or something like that, another discipline. But instead, he began by just simply asking a question. And the question is, so how do we change? Like as people, how do we, how do we transform and change? He shared some research that a Harvard psychologist, Robert Keegan, uh, has put, put out, and the conclusion of, of this uh, professor's research was that transformation is a byproduct when our perspective is radically altered. When our view has been radically disrupted and altered, we as people have a tendency to change. That when the way we understand and perceive the world, when that gets disrupted and altered, then all of a sudden, change comes from the inside out. For example, he shared this. He said, for a long time, it was the wildly held belief that the earth was the center of our universe and everything circled around that. Even Martin Luther, he defended and believed the saying, the Bible was clear about this truth. People were even martyred for disagreeing with that simple notion. But then one day, a man named Copernicus, he showed the world that the sun was the center of the universe. And a radical reordering of beliefs began to take place. Now, nothing really happened that day. It was nothing any different than any other day. But their perspective of life was radically changed. And the fundamental way people understood reality had changed as well. This is a quote from uh, Robert Keegan. He says this, The great embarrassment or liberation, I, I think it's really important, embarrassment or liberation of transformation itself is the recognition that we have been taking uh, as reality is actually only construction of reality. When what we have seen of the world, when it's disrupted, either it's in great embarrassment or it's actually liberation. When we find out our perspective is wrong, there's, there's a way we can kind of defend the way that we had seen it or we actually have been freed to see and exist in the world differently. Now, we could be uh, tempted to look at these beatitudes through a set of moral standards and duties that we have to strive and get to. We could hear the beatitude even today of blessed are the merciful and just strive to be people of mercy. But I think what we know to be true is the way that we will be transformed is by having a radically different perspective, radically different perspective of life and especially of God. Today, the most important thing that I want you to know and walk away with is this, is that God is full of mercy towards you and this world. That God is 
full of mercy towards you in this world. But this is not naturally many of our default perspectives of God. Especially when we think of the God of the Old Testament, we are to see a picture of a God that's angry and, and distant and doling out curses for our wrongdoings. This is a, a thought that many people had of, uh, in that day and time. But what we see, even, even in the Old Testament, is God is rich in mercy. We just need help to change our perspective, to have a new perspective And either it will be an embarrassment to what we used to think, or it could be our liberation to find a God who is rich in mercy. For instance, in the Old Testament, we have the story of Hosea, a man named Hosea, which is a beautiful, poetic, symbolic story about God's relationship with God's people. This story is centered on a godly prophet named Hosea who was called by God to marry a prostitute. And so Hosea goes and rescues her from being used and exploited and takes uh, her to be his wife. But in this tragic turn, she actually leaves him and goes back to the street. Now, in that day and time, it would have been completely right for Hosea to have his wife stoned, for uh, for her to be killed and for that wrath to be right in that way. But instead, God calls Hosea to do something surprising. Instead, God calls Hosea to go and to find his wife, to redeem, to restore, to to pursue her, and to love her once again. And again, this is a picture that God wanted between God and God's people, not just of Hosea. That this is a picture of who God is and who God wants to be. This picture of how you and I, we have been redeemed and restored in God, and yet somehow we have a tendency to leave that behind and chase hollow promises and really, really bad lovers in this world. And this is our tendency, and yet somehow God says, no, I'm not going to extend wrath to you. I'm not going to kill you. You're not this object of wrath instead. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to find you. I'm going to restore you. And this is a word from uh, God in Hosea, a word of a prophecy that God gave Hosea. In Hosea 6.6, 6, he says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. This right here is a, was a radical shift in perspective of who God was, that God was this distant, angry burn, uh, being, and our offering somehow calms God's anger down. Yet, what we see about who God is, is God wants you to know and experience His mercy above everything else. That God, before God wants your sacrifices and your piety and your morality, God wants you to know His mercy. To acknowledge that this is who God is. That God is rich in mercy to you. This is central for knowing and understanding who God is. If we miss out on understanding that God is a God of mercy, we miss out on understanding God. It's impossible to know God outside of knowing of His mercy. I found this to be interesting. Did you know what in, in, the, in the Old Testament and in Old Jewish practice... In the Jewish temple, do you know what the central focus of worship was? Where was the central uh, focus of worship in your mind? Well, it's probably in the sanctuary in the temple. 
For some people, they go, maybe in the Holy of Holies. And someone might even say, maybe the Ark of the Covenant, where it had in it, you know, Aaron's staff and, and, and the tablets with the, 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 the ten laws there. But was actually the focus point of their worship was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, above where the law was, which was understanding of God's uh, judgment and his direction in their life, above that almost covering it was this place in between those two angels was this place in which they believed that God uniquely was present and God uniquely spoke. Do you know the name of that place? That place is called the mercy seat. Above the law and the judgment of God, the place where God uniquely resided was the seat of mercy. And people looked to that place to see and understand God. That for all of time, God has always been a God of mercy. This is how we know God is through mercy. So how we hear God, we wait to hear God speak, and that is an act of mercy. We experience God this way. Yet somehow we have a tendency to not believe that. We believe that God might be an angry judge. Even when we look at our life, we might even think that God is just this perspective of guilt and shame to us. But this is not who God is. Even Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 1-5, through 5, this is what he said. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were without hope in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Also, all of you also lived among them, one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following desires and thoughts. It's like humanity is stuck in doing the things that we wish we wouldn't do. We're unable to be set free from that, that cycle of regret. And like the rest, this is what Paul says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That is our default picture of God, an angry God waiting to dole out wrath. But then Paul changes our perspective of who God is. God offers a different perspective, and I would be humiliation or liberation. And this is what he says. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, God is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved. For us to understand and know who God is and for us to be able to walk in this life with God, we know that God is rich in mercy. This disorients and reorients our view of God. It causes us to set aside our view of God, what God must be, and it liberates us to see a God of mercy. And once we have this perspective changed in us, once we see God differently, it is only then that we can change. It's only then that we can transform and begin to walk out in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. As a helpful side note for many of us, I know for me in my life, I've kind of changed out grace and mercy. I thought they were synonyms, but in fact, if you do a deeper dive into our scripture, we find that there's a little bit of a difference between grace and mercy. Where grace covers guilt, mercy covers misery. 
Mercy is seeing someone in pain and in hardship, someone who's experiencing injustice and is being moved with compassion. They give of themselves because they know it's going to benefit others. I'm looking at, even today, looking at the people wearing uh, your shirts uh, have cancer with the words scratched out. The reason why is because people donated uh, blood yesterday. And they did this in response to people in our church who have been recipients of this. My first time to draw blood. It was awful. It was awful. But uh, I got a cool little stuffed uh, football. That was awesome. And then I also realized that, man, if people have, I, who I've loved, their life has been sustained by other people giving of themselves, I would love to be a part of that. That's mercy. It's seeing the misery and the need of someone else and covering that. Grace covers guilt. Mercy covers misery. And for us as people, when we have seen a God who is rich in mercy, who's been so moved to respond on our behalf, full of compassion, unwarranted, unmerited love and compassion, once we have seen this view, we are changed and we are compelled to follow this God who's shown this. And we have seen this over and over again in the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus teaches us the way of mercy. It's almost that like Jesus grabs us by the hand if we read these Gospels and walks us along this journey and opens up windows looking at this life. And he walks out and he shows us the power of mercy by seeing his compassion motivated and, and uh, given to this world to see the misery of other people and to love and to heal, to redeem and restore. We see this lessons in mercy in and through the life of Jesus, what mercy can really do in this world. One of the ways in which Jesus teaches us about mercy is through the power of story. Story disrupts our perspective, like we talked about earlier, a change in perspective, and stories do that. Stories kind of lift up something and it causes, calls us to see something differently. So in Luke 10... Jesus tells a, a very well-known story about mercy. On one occasion, this is Luke 10, 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus responded, you're a teacher of law. What is written in the law? How do you read it? This man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and Love your neighbor as yourself. Two laws. This is the one greatest law. The man recites this, this commandment. And Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And at that, you would think maybe this conversation would wrap up and be over with, but something else was revealed in this man who's questioning Jesus. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, who's my neighbor? Remember, the commandment is to love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor. So this man, the teacher law goes, okay, great, so could you clarify who's my neighbor? Ah, okay, so that's what this is really about. Jesus realizes this man needs a different perspective. And so rather than him telling him to change his perspective, Jesus tells a story. He does a little trick on him, offering a different perspective. So Jesus tells a story about a man who's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, and along the way he falls prey to uh, a group of ro uh, uh, robbers, they, uh, they beat him, they strip, strip him, they leave him for dead. And then three people walk past him. 
The first is a priest. The next is another religious, religious leader, a Levite. And of all people, the third people was a despised person, a Samaritan. He was someone who was looked down upon in the Jewish circle. He was the despised other. He's the person that you would sneer at judgment. Person where if you were, they were to plop down on your middle school table, you and your friends would pick up your trays and go to another table. This is who the Samaritan was. The first two men see uh, this person who's been afflicted along the ditch on, on the side of the road. But rather than stopping and helping, they decide to cross over the side and move along the way. But the Samaritan was moved with compassion. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him into an inn to take care of. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then after offering a different perspective in the story, then Jesus lays out the truth with a simple question. He turns to this man and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Connecting this story to the commandment that this man was trying to use to justify him to inherit eternal life. Who was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hand of the robbers? Which of these three loved the neighbor? And then the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy. The one who had mercy. He loved the neighbor. The one who had mercy was justified. And then Jesus told him, go and be just like that despised Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Go and extend mercy. And just like this, this Jesus takes the unforeseen hero and says, in God's eyes, if you show mercy, this is what matters most. This is what I know about mercy. We can talk about it. We know it's good. But man, is it hard to live out. I remember that when the needle was in my arm, and I was squeezing it. It's like, why am I giving my blood here right now? I have a different perspective. A different perspective. Mercy is not easy, but we know in this beatitude there's a blessing that's in it. This is what I know about mercy. Mercy is costly. This Samaritan did not just stop in and check on the man and go, I'm going to tell some authorities, I'm going to tell some people that, that you need help and go along his way. No, mercy is costly. This man, this Samaritan man, he went the whole distance. He, did, he began by bandaging his wounds. Who like, carries around bandages with them at all times? Maybe some of us who are type A and like accident prone. But my guess is this man probably didn't have that. Instead, what he probably did, he took maybe his own clothes, his own belongings, and started making strips of bandages. And to cover this man's nakedness, he actually became more naked. To cover this man's vulnerability, he became more vulnerable. To see this man who was in danger, this man stopped the Samaritan, actually endangered himself. And not only that, but, but he also carried this man to this inn. He paid for the room and promised to cover any additional costs. Mercy is costly, and it goes the extra mile. Mercy is often, uh, also often unseen. It is believed that one of the reasons why the, the priest and the Levi did not stop and help the Samaritan is because uh, the potential of what would, what would happen if this man was dead. This man was dead, 
the priest and the Levite, if they touched him, they'd be considered unclean. And if they were going to Jerusalem to do their, their practices in the temple, they would not be allowed to do this. In my studies, I think a priest can only serve in the temple twice a year for one week. And by touching someone who's potentially deceased, you'd be unclean for a whole week. You'd miss out on this opportunity to serve in the temple in front of people doing this beautiful religious experience, this, this thing that's so public. And instead, am I really going to give it up to help this man right here? I've waited way too long for this. God needs me to serve him in the temple. The community needs me. Anyone can help this man, but only I can serve in the temple. This could have been rolling around in their minds. And though the priest's service in the temple was public, the Samaritan's mercy was largely unseen. And what this story is telling us, Jesus is making this point, that the only one who saw this man's mercy is the only one who matters. It was God. And mercy, though it's often unseen by others, is seen by God as the ultimate uh, is seen by the ultimate giver of mercy. This parable reminds us that God might care more about what we do on the way to the temples of our life than what we do in our temple. This is what God cares about. Mercy compels mercy. Mercy is something that God sees and responds to. And Jesus might say to many of us today, go and discover what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the question is, if we see these opportunities, will we respond? The question is often if we see these opportunities. Mercy is attentive and interruptible. I'm realizing more and more how much of my life is on auto autopilot. My drive to work, how I'm half attentive. My nighttime routine after the kids are all finally in bed, just clomping down the stairs to go uh, through my nighttime routine, my morning routine. So much of my life, I do just half awake. I go through the motions, half attentive. But as, what is worse is my attention goes way, way down when I'm trying to get something done. When I have a goal in mind, I have the tendency to block out everything else that might uh, interrupt my day. And this story of the Good Samaritan is a story of three interruptions. Three people, each experiencing an interruption. And one sees the opportunity and responds and allows their life to be interrupted. It makes me ask the question of my days. How interruptible am I? How interruptible am I in my plans, my agenda to, to move it aside so I can actually see the opportunity for mercy right here in front of me? In 1973, at Princeton, seminary students took part in an experiment. I shared this a couple years ago. I think it's so compelling. I have to share it again. In one building, the seminary students were told they were going to have to take a questionnaire. So they started filling out the questionnaire. And then after they turned in the questionnaire, they were told that they have to go to another building on campus, and uh, they, had, they had to give a short sermon they're oh, okay. Okay, so I have to, from here to there to be able to prepare in my mind a short sermon. But what the experiment was between building A and building B, there would be someone who would act like there was an actor, someone who would be passed out on the ground, lifeless and just limp. And the experiment was whether or not these seminary students would actually stop and help, stop and check on this person. 
if they would give mercy. And to make it even more cruel, do you know what their sermon was going to be about? Yeah, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just a little dagger right there. What made it more interesting for me is the experiment not only judged whether or not they would stop, but they actually had one variable, and there's three different categories of students. One, they were told that uh, you have time, don't worry, you can have time to prepare your message, take your time. Another one says you need to get there pretty quickly. Uh, and then the third, third group was you're already late. And so they wanted to see how hurriedness uh, affects people's ability to stop and give mercy. And here are the results. For those who uh, were in a low hurry condition, 63% of those seminary students stopped and helped. 40, 43% of the people in the medium hurry condition stopped and helped. And only 10% of those who were already late, they stopped and helped. While they were, while they were uh, narrating their talk, they had this opportunity, the whole moral of this story, and they sidestepped it because they were in too much of a hurry. And this, for me, is so incriminating because I know that I live my life in a hurried state. How much of your day is hurried? How many of you that are, are, are list makers, that you have a list, you might be making your list right now as I preach, things I'm going to do when I get home, you know? I'm a list maker. I have a whole system. And I, and I like, for me, my day has been successful if I have crossed out enough of those things on my to-do list. And I don't cross it out once. I black them out. I'm like, the whole, the, I don't want to see a letter because it's so gratifying. The, this beatitude flips success upside down. It's not about performance. It's not about achievement. It's not about getting it done. It's about being interruptible and attentive to opportunities to show mercy in our life. For us to walk in mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When our lives are as open as it can be, so that mercy runs through our life in and into this world, we will experience the blessing that I think this beatitude is pointing us to. But for us, we have to have a radical shift in our perspective of who God is and allow that view of God's mercy to flow through our life. And when this world considers this church, the church, our presence in the world, are they seeing and experiencing mercy? Would that be the first description that this world would give of the church? Oh, there are people of mercy. I think God might want to use us to disrupt the perspective of this world as well. I want to close just by sharing a story of someone I met recently. His name is Burl. Can we pull up the picture of Burl? Let's see if Burl's up here. Hey, there's Burl. I heard about Burl from a neighbor of mine. Uh, she lives two doors down from Burl, and she went into his house the other day. He's a, he's a widower, and she went into his house the other day and went in there and saw a bunch of pictures of babies around his home and like half interested and half really creeped out. Uh, said, hey, so Burl, what's the story with all the babies? And uh, she found out that he and his wife had fostered for 40 years. And so I heard about this, and one day I was driving home, and I was listening to KUT, and they have this whole program. I was thinking, how, how do I, I want to talk to Burl about that. And I heard this program on KUT where they are inviting people to nominate neighbors and people that are around to interview. And I was like, oh, I'm going to interview Burl. So I contacted the radio station. They're like, yeah, go interview Burl. So I sat down with Burl a week ago, and they recorded this interview I had with him uh, for the radio. 
And I got to ask Burl, so tell me more about the situation. You, you said you fostered for how long? 40 years, his wife passed away. And I said, tell me more about that. And he said, we just decided that we wanted to foster newborns, only newborns. And uh, we did that for many years. And I, it's like I had to pry more information out of him. Uh, he, he was curious why this would be so interesting that we would even want to know about it. He and his wife, over those years, fostered 173 newborn babies. 173. Sometimes they would have three babies in their house at one time. And in asking him more about it, I said, <laughs> for me, like, just like, you know, my face, I'm like, how? How? For 40 years in the cloudy, like, mess of having a newborn, you, you did that for that long? And he's like, well, it was just a decision we made. And I asked him, I was like, bro, what was, the, what was the hardest thing about fostering 173 kids? And he said, uh, letting them go each time, 173 times, having to surrender that child. Um, and as he was talking more and more, I was like, oh, this guy has mercy. He and his wife had mercy. One of the saddest things is that his wife became sick and passed away, and that was, the, that was the only reason why they stopped. He said, I wish I could still be doing it. And um, he said, I, my hope is that we just have made it some, some sort of a difference. And I said, 180 would have been a difference, Burl. 173? <laughs> Not so much. But this is what mercy is. For me, this is my picture of mercy this week. Um, seeing... Um, seeing the most vulnerable people in our community, uh, I mean, newborn children without a home, without a family, seeing uh, the most vulnerable people in our community and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll give up. We'll give up our time. We'll give up costly, uh, our time and our attention, our resources, and have our home be used um, to build a legacy um, and because these are newborns, and most of them were found at home within a year, year and a half, they don't even know about Burl. Like, they don't even know about his wife. I said only four of them are, have any sort of relationship with him. But what I think of when I think about Burl, and I think about this home that was used for 173 kids, Mercy lived there. That's where Mercy lived. And I think about this beatitude, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I think perhaps after the life and the legacy that they quietly live, that Burl should probably be the one preaching about mercy. He's experienced it. He knows it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy.